You are listening to Friends of Europe's podcast. Don't miss our debates on global and European issues that span political, economic, social and environmental challenges and follow our website at friendsofeurope.org. Okay, so welcome back, uh, everyone. So this morning we had, a, I think, a very, very interesting and I have to say informative discussion about what youth uh, in the Mediterranean really, really want. Uh, want for themselves, but also their expectations, you know, uh, as regards the international community and, of course, also the European Union. We heard some, um, for uh, those who were not here, we heard some really interesting ideas about an Erasmus program for associations, about a talent passport. We got some criticism, uh, and I think uh, justified criticism, of the EU's engagement or lack of engagement in the Mediterranean. But also we heard a lot about engaging with the youth, you know, how important it is to actually take the voice of young people into account when crafting, uh, drawing up policies. Because without that, you don't get the sustainable um, action that you need on peace, prosperity, safety, uh, and, and, and the rest. So let's just take that conversation forward in seeing how are international organizations, how's the European Union, how are the Arab governments taking into account all the different uh, goals and priorities of young people or not taking into account? Are they walking the talk? Um, so to join me uh, on this panel, uh, Hella Grishi, I think a lot of you he people here know Hella very well. She's a young Mediterranean voice and she's involved in several grassroots initiatives. She's been at Friends of Europe uh, events in the past. So welcome back, Hella. Uh, also here, Abdel Basad Ben Hassan. Also very, very delighted to have you here, Abdel Basad. President of the Arab Institute for Human Rights and Chairman of the National Committee for the Support of Refugees based in Tunisia. Uh, thank you very much. Michael Kohler, old friend and colleague, he's director uh, at the uh, Dijunier, right? Uh, General, director general for neighborhood and enlargement negotiations. And last but not least, Tarek Youssef, senior fellow at the development program at Brookings and director of the Brookings Doha Center. And of course, he's an expert on what happens in the region and its engagement with the rest of the world. So I'm gonna kick off with you, Hella, right? So take the conversation forward from what we heard uh, in the first session about the aspirations, but also your, your belief or lack of that some of the things you're saying, that people are not just listening to you, but also acting on what the youth is saying. So I come from Tunisia, and in Tunisia we have the system of the representative parliament, except that the representative parliament in Tunisia doesn't really represent. So sometimes as a young person, when I see my peers in the streets uh, practicing their right of uh, informal politic involvement, calling for things, telling the government explicitly that the thing that I'm doing is going nowhere, and then they ignore it and pass a certain law or don't pass a law that we really need, it feels like talking to a wall. And so it's weird to me that the majority of the prison population are young people imprisoned because they smoked a joint under a wall out of despair, that they are not given a second chance. If I see these kind of policies, I wonder if the government really cares about us. Um, another instance where I was really disappointed in our parliament was when there was um, a campaign called Menishim Semah, which means I, don't, I do not forgive. And the parliament was about to pass a law to forgive those people who before the revolution stole money from the government's treasury. And we were all calling uh, the parliament to tell them, please do not pass this law, don't forgive them. Give this money back to the people and let young people become entrepreneurs. Let's make the country a better place and it's not time to look back it's time to look forward and they ignored this as well so what is the meaning of words if actions don't follow um, this takes me to the point that in Tunisia I have the feeling we have this kind of Kafkaesque bureaucracy um, this sticking to the past this sticking to uh, old values even though they don't apply anymore and so it's difficult for young people to imagine themselves in positions of power or in positions of even small power, like being entrepreneurs, uh, realizing that they really are capable of doing things. And this is because the policies that we need to encourage this, these people, they do not exist. And if you don't tell a young person in their face that you can do it, they will doubt themselves their whole lives and probably never come forward. Um, and it's a problem because in, in Tunisia we have this problem that government jobs are in a surplus. So we have so many jobs that often they don't really do things. For example, if you go to prepare a paper, instead of going into one office, you have to go to five offices. 
So there is a waste of the government spending in this sector, but then we have the education system bleeding because there are no teachers for remote areas, or there is no theater teacher for a, a village up the hill. Or You see the problem? So this is just mismanagement. This is just not looking at the reality how it is. And so one of the things that I would suggest as an ex-teacher who's taught in a really remote area is to reform the educational system and to create human beings that can think independently, that can criticize themselves and that can think forward and be innovative and tell these people that they can be trusted with the future because they are the future. And I really don't want to sound romantic, but in, in the MENA region we have 60% of populations being young people. So why don't you exploit this uh, human resource, literally, these human resources that you have to make um, the GDP higher, to give chances to people to be happier and to have your country lead a better life. So it's actually a win-win situation. If you encourage young people, you will have a better GDP, a better quality of life, and you'll get rid of all the problems that come with youth unemployment. And so um, another thing that I really would like to point out, and this is really positive, is that in terms of youth quota, the government actually implemented a youth quota in the last municipal elections. And uh, youth were represented by between 50, uh, 45 and 50 percent, which was really good. And there was also a gender quota, so I'm, I'm proud of that. But what's striking here is that young people did not go to the polls. And I was at 12 polling stations as an observer, and you had old people with canes walking into the, into the poll station and they were voting and there were no young people and you could see the cafe next to the poll station was full of them and they didn't care or they felt like it would even, wouldn't even matter if they went to the polls. I found that sad because a study from the World Bank actually says that Tunisian youth is not disengaged from political life. They just um, prefer to go into informal politics instead of formal politics because they feel like they don't have the space to push themselves through in, in the formal political space. So they'd rather join an NGO, like me. Um, they would rather do sit-ins, they would sign petitions, organize demonstrations. They would shout their rights, but not in the space where it would make a real change on, on very concrete terms. I'm not saying that NGO work doesn't change, but we have to admit that laws pass through formal politics. If you want to change something, you have to go into that field. And sometimes I tell myself, why don't you go into politics? And I feel like I'm really afraid of it, because it doesn't seem like a space that would accept me. So it would be really great if we would foster a culture of dialogue between youth and the government, and if the educational system was reformed, because if you reform the educational system, you can see the difference between societies in 10, 15 years. But if you do not, I don't know where we would be going with this. And so a disillusioned youth and a, a youth that is not apolitical but has suffers rather from apathy is not really a good thing if you want to better your country. And um, so what I want to say to the older people, it's a win-win situation. So why don't you not pass on the torch to the younger generation. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Hella. Thank you very much indeed. So I feel like talking to a wall. And uh, it's amazing that you're saying this about a country that Tunisia, right, which is often seen here in Europe as the poster child of what does work. So if you're not having a dialogue with the authorities in a country like Tunisia, I guess it's even more difficult, if not impossible, elsewhere in the region. Is there no, um, is there no connection or do you have consultation procedures, but you know nothing's acting on? Or is there absolutely no link between authorities and, and young people? Well, for the municipal elections now, I'm having some hope that the new independent parties that won a majority will reach out to these people, but that's still in the future. I cannot tell you about that. But uh, in general, there is a, a big gap and a disconnection between the government and the people. And, um, the youth just don't trust them and they are not ready to go to vote because of that. And even if you tell them, why don't you post a blank vote and express your dissent like that? And they would just say, I don't care anymore. They will not listen anyway. And that's pretty sad. Mm. I mean, we in Europe have the same problem with the, our elections here. I mean, very few young people voted in the referendum on Brexit. And let's see what happens with the European Parliament elections coming up. And I think that's one of the things we actually have to work on if we don't want bad results. Um, so thank you very much, Hella. We'll come back to you. Um, Abdel, uh, Abdel Basset, so I wanted to ask you, you're working on human rights in a region where we've heard, and you know, it's difficult, it's a challenge, not just in that region, by the way, uh, here in Europe, in some parts of Europe as well. Just wanted to ask you the impact of your work 
Are you seeing any changes? Or is it just, as Hello said, talking to a wall? Uh, thank you. Good morning. Uh, I think that uh, in the last, uh, I think, two decades, many uh, initiatives are happening in the north and the south. And uh, um, creative ideas, creative projects. But the two words I think that we need really to revisit and to, uh, to work on are impact, enduring impact, and sustainability. I think what we want to really to explore together is how to transform all these ideas, initiatives, into things that can impact historical processes and be sustainable enough to uh, develop uh, real solutions because people are hopeless because of the absence of solutions for their quality uh, life. And, uh, uh, let me uh, tell you uh, a, a small, uh, brief story. Uh, I've been, before the revolution in Tunisia, I've been training leaders, human rights leaders, for more than 20, uh, 20 years. And all people were asking me the same questions. I was confronted with the very difficult, what is your impact on the reality in these countries, authoritarian, with authoritarian regimes, with a culture which is in brackets against human rights, etc. And it was very difficult to respond to this question because how to uh, talk about or how to measure the impact of uh, our work on values. It was not about only techniques, but about yani, uh, 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 embedding values inside the culture and inside all through the systems, the political and the economic systems. And uh, after the revolution in 2011, I, I was um, uh, chosen as member of the High Council for Revolution, Political Reform and uh, Democratic Transition, the first parliament, and I found myself with 45 human rights activists, men and women, and we've been in charge of drafting the new laws of Tunisia on political parties, elections, civil society, and also on developing the new policies. And for the first time, I saw impact historical impact in the reality. And I think is one of our main, uh, I think, uh, uh, missions now, is developing the possibility to integrate values in the history, historical processes. This is the most, I think, think important that we need to, to do. <clears throat> and uh, values, if we talk about values, if we analyze the situation now, uh, I think that we have common uh, challenges. I think that we are going through a very difficult situation with a lot of marginalization. People are suffering from marginalization, economic, social, cultural marginalization. I think that we are moving from politics to a kind of uh, uh, discourses, political discourses based on, um, on populism and radicalism. And I think that is a major challenge for us. And I think also that we are going through a kind of uh, uh, situations where diversity is not recognized. I think that we have real problem now with diversity and the recognition of diversity. I think that we need really to revisit our leadership programs and strategies to be based on values. And values, I think, are human rights based. We need to work together on mainstreaming human rights in our laws, in the policies, and in our programs. And this is not just theoretical. We need to work on that. We need to develop a real culture by training, by developing media work, internet work, and also by training young people on how to introduce human rights in the policies, in different policies, public policies. I think that this is the first issue. The second issue, I think, is about moving from crisis management to policy-based strategies. I think they are, we are managing crisis. And it's important to manage crisis. I think it's important to respond to crisis, but how to develop a new culture of 
policy making, I think that this needs to change our work culture. We need to move from confrontation mm. to the common responsibility. This is one of the main principles of the, world, of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And we are celebrating the 70th anniversary this year of in the uh, preamble of the uh, World uh, Universal Declaration, we are talking about common responsibility. It's the responsibility of the state institutions, private sector, civil society. These are re their responsibility to go through this policy uh, mm -hmm. making uh, strategy. Third thing, I think that we need sustainable, sustainable institutions. In the South, we don't have sustainable institutions. We don't have think tanks. There are few, very important, but there are very few. We don't have laboratory research laboratories. We don't have spaces for young people to do their work and to, 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 to be uh, empowered. We don't have places where we can put together local community organizations to work with civil society organizations. There is a kind of divide even inside the uh, civil society. Uh, let me uh, uh, finish by, by, by very brief experience. In uh, 2014, uh, we started a campaign in Tunisia. Uh, the Arab Institute with 14 organizations uh, on reforming the school system. It was very big, very large campaign. And at the end, after one year, the new government in 2015 asked us to be part of the reform of the education system. And we are doing this. There are, of course, we are changing policy. It's very difficult. We have a lot of problems, sometimes a lot of, uh, uh, I think, interruptions. But first, we are working as a ministry, the state with civil society organization. Second, we started this reform process by a consultation. Mm -hmm. In one day, all the students, all the students had the right to express their views about school. And then now we have 15, um, uh, 15 uh, committees working on 15 issues on reforming the okay. school system. And part of this, in the 15th uh, commission, there are young people. And the slogan of the reform is, is for the public school and a citizenship school. Right. I think that revisiting our uh, work is very important in the sense to make human rights the main, the main uh, value-driven uh, issue for our uh, reforms and our policy making. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Abdel Basset. You know, it's interesting when you were speaking about the challenges you face about diversity, populism, illiberal thought, and human rights, I, you know, we face the similar challenges here. So brings me to the thing that we often talk about within the Anna Lind uh, uh, network, uh, Young Mediterranean Voices, in, in these issues, these challenges, it's really not about us and them. It really isn't, because in this world, we're all facing very, very, very similar challenges. There may be variations of it, but the same points uh, emerge when you talk to young people here uh, and, and in the region. So thank you very much for those insights. Tarek, um, in the earlier session today, we talked a lot about the European Union, and I want to sort of go further into it because we also have uh, Michael here who can give us some feedback from his institution. Um, so Tarek, the Middle East, you know, sometimes we think, as, as I think Elizabeth, you said, you know, there is money, uh, there's money to be made, uh, business opportunities, and you know, guess what? Who's moving in there? China. Uh, China is becoming a very powerful and important uh, player uh, in, in that region. And so the European Union, is it losing ground? Uh, do people still think the EU is a relevant player in terms of you know, coming to the support of democracies and, and, and dealing with young people, etc.? Honest views, and I'm sure you will be very honest. Thank you, Shada. Um, I think you ask a very appropriate question, especially after two days of discussions where uh, I think many people, especially people from the region, remain very hopeful 
about the role of Europe, the prospects from greater European uh, engagement, uh, and people who recognize the history, geography, and, uh, and the role of existing cooperation and existing integration in becoming and remaining viable. Having said that, I must also be very candid and say that I increasingly I'm seeing Europe become less relevant in the region. Um, another way of stating it is the region and Europe are becoming increasingly decoupled from one another for a host of geopolitical reasons that have been mentioned, but for a host of policy priority and practical reasons. Um, I've spent most of my life uh, being a cheerleader for the Euromed integration, uh, working, talking, and contributing to policy debates and policy initiatives uh, that started in the 90s on trying to bring these two regions together. Uh, the results to date have been very modest. Um, and meanwhile, other events have overtaken us and overtaken the project. So much so that it really is becoming very difficult to become excited about the possibilities of renewing the energy and the sense of optimism and hope that just a decade or two ago were part and parcel of how the region and Europe in, uh, engaged with one another. I think as Fadi and others have mentioned yesterday, uh, we do have our problems. And our problems now are far bigger, more complicated than any other time, at least in my own lifetime. Um, geopolitical uncertainty, political instability, internal civil strife, you name it. And as a result, I think it's become very difficult for Europe to engage, um, to devote the necessary political capital, resources, and to make the priorities we need for ourselves part of how Europe wants to engage with us. I was telling a few friends a few days ago that most of the invitations I receive from Europe nowadays are not to talk about European integration with the region, economic, trade, but to talk about crisis management related issues. How to stem the flow of illegal migrants, how to counterbalance the financing of terrorism, how to ensure that ISIS will be defeated. And while I recognize that these are important policy issues for Europe, I refuse to accept the premise that somehow they need to be made our priorities. We have neither the resources nor the policies or the institutional capabilities, and we've got problems that we cannot even begin to count. So if these are going to be the priorities, I have even less hope about how much Europe can do to help the region deal with its issues. This is not to mention the meager financial assistance and limited trade progress and a host of other areas where, quite frankly, what Europe is putting on the table is neither attractive nor compelling. It, it, it does not even start a discussion going. Okay, I'm going to, I'm going to push back uh, on, on just one thing. Uh, when you say uh, we refuse to make them our priorities, Tariq, terrorism, uh, ISIS, definitely should, aren't they, priorities in the region too? They are, our priori they are priorities for us, but they're not the priorities. Okay. If the only thing Europe wants to talk about is illegal immigration or terrorism financing, then we should actually walk away from the table. The next round of potential political protests in the Arab world, not now, not next year, but within a few years, are not going to be led only by youth. They, youth will play a big part in this. And I think we foresaw this many, many years ago, and it happened. I think it's going to be, it will be protests led by hungry people, by destitute people by people who've lost all and complete hope, especially as many of the political crises, civil wars, and quite frankly, uh, the interventions in regional issues that are happening in places like Libya and Yemen 
continue to create mm -hmm. uh, future sources of instability and potential uh, uh, insecurity for the people in the region and for others. So they are our priorities, but they cannot define a Euro-Mediterranean or a Euro-Middle East engagement. They are no longer sufficient. And uh, perhaps I'll just very quickly answer the first part of your question. Where do I get excited when I get invited these days? Who has a project for the Middle East? Whether you like that project, you have a problem with the project, but it is a project and it is happening. When I get invitations from China to talk about China's ambition, China's resources, China's commitments, China's inroads into the region, it's not just about trade and finance, it's about infrastructure, it's about the export of industrialization, it's about economic diversification and, economic and energy security. That to me, with all of its flaws and all of its problems, is a project that is likely with time to gain traction and to begin to fill voids and needs in the region. And over time, my worry, and I'll stop here, should Europe continue down this path of incremental engagement, um, uh, modest uh, economic, financial uh, links, not to mention all the insecurities and, and, the, and the sources of instability, you will wake up one day and find that China has in fact taken over not just Africa, but the Middle East. Um, and we can discuss obviously uh, the flaws and the problems inherent in this. My only message on the growing Middle Eastern engagement with China is to allow this engagement to be defined on its own terms. We want to deal with China by defining our own priorities, national interests, areas where we might want to work and areas where we might not want to work and areas where we might want to resist the scale uh, of China's ambitions and its particular ways of addressing that. What I am increasingly uncomfortable finding myself doing these days is telling others outside of the region, especially in Europe and the US, please allow us to define our relationship with China rather than impose on us your own specific priorities, fears, uh, and problems uh, uh, that you have with China. This, in my mm -hmm. humble opinion, is a trans potential tran transformative project. At some point, Europe uh, will be in a better shape to potentially engage with us, but given current dynamics, I just do not see it happening. Right. And increasingly, I find myself traveling to Shanghai uh, and feeling good about the future, as opposed <laughs> to elsewhere where it's all about the problems we face and the problems we'll, we'll need to tackle. Thank you for those sobering thoughts. I think what you've said on the Belt and Road also applies to Europe. I think the big challenge is to define our own vision of the BRI, multilateralize it, and actually try and shape some of the uh, rather uneasy, the, the areas where we feel uneasy about the way this vision is being implemented. But thank you for that sobering thought. I think the only thing that, uh, Michael, I, I would ask you, I mean, obviously, I uh, want to get your point of view, but, you know, it's easy to criticize Europe, but it does take two to tango. I mean, you know, Europe has been working with the region for decades. I mean, I've been following, forgive me, for so many years, the Euro-Arab dialogue and all different kinds of things. But there has to be a response from the region as well. I mean, you cannot have a partnership just one-way street, right? So it's all very well to criticize. What are we getting in terms of ideas and initiatives and creativity from the region apart from what we're talking about now? So let's, let's hear your side from the EU institutions. Maybe this works. Yes, this works. Um, I think Tarek is, is in great parts right. Um, though it seems to me that China doesn't have a project for the Mediterranean or the Middle East. China has a project for China. And Russia has a project for Russia. And the United States have a project for the United States. I think if there's anybody who still has a project for the region, it's the European Union. But there's a lot of fatigue and frustration. This is true. And that has to do with what you said, uh, Shada, that uh, in a way it takes two to tango. And even if you find your partner for tango, 
I'm not a good dancer, I have to admit, ladies, but um, <laughs> I would imagine that after, let's say, 20 years of dancing, you get a bit tired and you want to have a pulse. Um, now, maybe you cannot afford having a pulse, but still, you don't have the same enthusiasm as probably during the first round of dancing. Um, many things that Tarek mentioned are absolutely right. Uh, and I think they are also absolutely normal. It is absolutely normal in times of globalization that there are more players than just two in this region. And I have never heard anybody object here in Brussels to the fact that China has an increasing presence. For example, in the Suez Canal Economic Zone or in Algeria. They were in Libya before they had to evacuate 50,000 workers because of security. Nobody has a problem with that. Nobody has a problem with the fact that Turkey has an active Mediterranean policy and so forth. Yeah? That's not the problem. The problem comes only, so to say, when uh, this is pure, so to say, national interest. And you can criticize, of course, the European Union for lack of uh, activity or enthusiasm. But I ask you first question, two questions. First, who is still by far the biggest investor in trade power in the Mediterranean, and you will not come to China, you will not come to the United States, you will still find that the European Union is by far the biggest power. And actually some countries which from time to time take an interest in telling us that we are no longer relevant in times of crisis turn to us. And if it is only for the fact that the EU member states have by far the biggest voting power in the board of the IMF, for example. So when it gets to getting your cash flow right, then uh, Europe uh, is uh, the number to call, and actually Europe responds to your call. The second thing is, if we didn't do Mediterranean initiatives, who would? Who would? Let's just imagine that we would stop any funding for Mediterranean activities. We wouldn't finance this project any longer. We wouldn't finance uh, the Union for the Mediterranean. We wouldn't have regional projects. We wouldn't pay the administration per diems to attend our ministerial meetings. Who would do that? Would there anybody else who would step in? Would the Arab countries all of a sudden say, hmm, let's do that? We did an interesting test with the so-called Agadir process. I don't know whether you know that. This is the free trade agreement between Morocco, Tunisia, Egypt, and Jordan, and now Lebanon and Palestine are joining as well. And they have a secretariat or technical unit, is that called, in Amman, mm -hmm. which for 10 years we have financed. Now we said, okay, we are going to continue financing it, but we want to have at least 20% share coming from the countries. Now, it was overwhelming to me that indeed the four ministers of the four main countries agreed that they now want to pay 20%. So there's a degree of ownership, but I have not yet seen the check. So ask me again in a couple of months whether this really materializes. <laughs> the fact of the matter is that not only have we more players in the region, but the region is less a region than it has ever been. Actually, I, I wonder whether we should call it a region. Okay, if you're a geographer, then you say it's a region. But if you're a political scientist or an economist, is there still something like a region? Do we not organize these events like this we are, in order to create a common ownership for something which we think is a region because it's in Europe's interest that there's a region and that's a regional cooperation? But you all know that there are a couple of countries that, in a way, have made it a program not to belong to the region. Mm -hmm. Turkey, Israel, Morocco, and there may be others. They distinctly don't want to be part of a Mediterranean region. And the result of this is that they say, listen, fine, all this is great, and maybe we attend the meeting, but the real stuff is in our bilateral relations. Mm -hmm. And secondly, we have other orientations, maybe Sub-Saharan Africa, maybe Asia and the Gulf, or whatever. Mm -hmm. yeah? Now, Tarek is also right in saying that, um, in a way, we are being invited to the wrong meetings. All the meetings on crisis and so forth. And this is true. Still, I would think, first, if there's still anybody who speaks about investment promotion, about values, about human rights, about civil society, I think it is the European Union. I don't hear this very much out of the United States any longer, unfortunately. And I've never heard anybody speaking in Russian or Chinese about these things. Nor in Arabic with a Qatari accent or an Emirati accent or in Turkish, right? And some of these languages I know. 
So still, I think we are doing these things. Um, but I think the time is over for grandiose projects. First, because we are all more modest today, knowing the limitations about our possibilities, the limitations of our cloud. Secondly, because I think all the major grandiose projects that were developed, many of them in Washington actually, maybe some of them even at Brookings, have grandiosely failed. I remember all these meetings with US think tanks in 2003, where they developed this domino theory. Right. We take out Saddam Hussein, we install democracy in Iraq, it will spill over into Syria, there will be democracy in Syria. This will also settle the Israeli-Arab conflict. We will have peace and harmony and democracy in the entire region, and then comes growth, and all the problems will be gone. And you all know where we are today. I would have loved them to be right. But I have lost some of my enthusiasm over the years, unfortunately. Now, it is right that more and more people, when they think of the region, look at the symptoms and not at the problem. The symptoms are criminality, terrorism, migration, and so forth. I think we have to accept this as a matter of fact. I dislike it as much as you dislike it, Tariq, because I believe that people should rather look at the real problem. The real problem is what, Hala, uh, uh, you mentioned, 60% of the population are young. If I think of the region and I look for a metaphor, I always think of a pressure cooker. With a pressure cooker, with the valve being closed. What is the valve? It is migration. We are in a situation where you have the combination of a galloping demography, almost in all the countries, bad governance in almost all the countries, so governance that doesn't create hope and perspectives for the young generation. And thirdly, what we did in Europe in the 19th century when we industrialized, when our regime changed and when our population grew, that is, we emigrated to the United States in millions and millions. This is no longer possible. Immigration to Europe is difficult. Immigration to the Gulf is equally difficult. So pressure cooker. The pressure is rising. Right. Um, and many people seem to be instinctively aware of that. We are going, unfortunately, there's a high chance, and I think you mentioned this, uh, the high chance we are going to face more unrest. Right. Now, in the democracies that we are, many people are concerned by these things, although they are not experts of the region. And they organize these events. Now, you may say they are discussing the wrong subject. They should look at the roots. But the good thing, if you look for something good, is these are also the people that are able to re mobilize resources. It is true we still have too little money. It is true we still have too little courage, political initiative. But we have more than the past. And why is that so? Because people are aware, the European heads of state and government, then they come together, they are aware that there is something boiling and this is dangerous. And therefore, they put money into, for example, trust funds that exactly. we have now. Yes. Now, and border controls. last word, I know I'm too long and I apologize. Uh, but what I would like to say is, again, it takes two to tango. I believe that the European Union is doing an incredible lot of things, but simply not enough. Mm -hmm. Still, I believe, um, if you t gave us much more money, we wouldn't really know how to spend it. And it is also true that we could think of many more new political initiatives. It is also true that many of the initiatives that we put on the table in response to the Arab Spring in 2011 have still remained unanswered. Right. And in a situation where... I see ministers, I don't want to quote a country, ministers of countries that do most of their trade with the European Union and ask them about their vision for the development of trade and economic relations with the European Union, and which kind of new agreement they would like to have, and they don't have an answer. They don't even know what they want. Right. It is very difficult for us to put more and more on the table because it's a dialogue of the deep. Uh, thank you very much, Michael. I did give you more time because we talked so much about the EU and Europe in the first session as well, and this is the first chance we've really had somebody from the institutions to come and uh, give your point of view. And, and I, I'm sure the panelists will come back to some of the issues you've raised, but thank you very much for being very frank, very open, and very, very honest. I'm going to throw the floor open to questions. Can I have a show of hands about how many people want to come in on this discussion? Okay. Uh, let's go there first. Yes, please. Thank you. I'm Amanda from Lebanon. Um, 
To the representative of the engineer, thank you very much for a very powerful answer to many of the questions that we always have. Um, two quick remarks, if possible. Very often, it's not the issue of how much involvement or how much money there is. Obviously, there is a lot. And I come from an organization that has been uh, supported by the EU. Sometimes it's some bureaucratic things that can happen all over the world that uh, reduce the impact or reduce uh, the, um, the power of the EU message. Tiny example, on so many issues related to freedom of expression, the ability, for example, to produce local grants by the EU delegations has been removed. And instead of having, in each one of our countries, a grant of 200,000 euros, 100,000 euros administered by the EU delegation locally, it has been replaced by 10 million euro grants to huge consortiums of European companies and operators, and sometimes some sub-grants to the local people, when it comes to the actual impact on trying to provide a lawyer to a journalist who is unduly sued, it can't work. So yes, in terms of numbers, engagement is still very high, but not necessarily through the challenges, uh, through the channels that allow us to be effective. Mm. So this is a certain point. And my last point is related to the pressure cooker you were mentioning so uh, correctly. The pressure will increase even higher. The, progress that is taking place at the technological front in Europe and the United States, leaving the southern shore of the Mediterranean only in a position of passive consumer, whereas the economy will change, jobs will change, might add to the, all the security and economic factors that today exist and lead to migration. And if it's not addressed quickly, it's a bigger problem. And how to do it? We hope that DigiNear will show us, maybe you do, but we don't feel it, that you cooperate more closely with DigiConnect, with Digi, uh, Digital Economy, with education, so that the great ideas that are being discussed, cooked, within the EU circles in other uh, administrations are also discussed with you and DEFCO so that quickly enough we can uh, build cooperations on these fronts as well. Thank you. Thank you very much for both those points. In fact, uh, Michael, to be very frank, yesterday in the discussion we had on women uh, power as well, there was a question of how the EU has a silo approach when it comes to certain themes, and it's very important to have more consistency and coherence, uh, coherence policy for development, you know, the, the, the slogan we've had for very, very long. So let me just take a, a, another question. Yes, could I take this gentleman here? Yes, please. Thank you very much. I'm Chen from Myanmar Embassy. Uh, my question probably goes to Anna, I think, and maybe to other panelists as well. Uh, I, I'm sure that you're very much like uh, the strongest young uh, advocate for education reform, uh, basically, in your country. And we are actually transiting into a very dramatic democracy since 2011. And we, we have a, a whole lot of challenges today and tomorrow. And I couldn't agree more to you in terms of uh, the need of the educational reform for democracy and for all the sake of the all human beings on the earth. I think this is the very thing which uh, Secretary General of the United Nations, Mr. Guterres, has. Can I, can I please ask you to put the question? Or the yeah, yeah, this is like you said uh, educational reform is the very need for the youth and. Uh, all people. So what sort of practical measures and what sort of projects would you have in mind to realize this reforms in on the ground? Thank you very Thank much. Thank you very much indeed. I had the, excuse me, you wanted to ask a question? Yes. Yes. And if there's anyone else, yes, very good. Okay, I'll take two more questions and then turn to the panel. Please go ahead. Does it, does it work? Yeah. Yes. I'll try to be very short. Um, my question would be uh, for, for Tariq. Um, I really thank you for, for, for your comments, and I couldn't uh, agree more. Uh, I guess we're all friends of Europe, and therefore uh, this Eurocentric flavor, uh, I guess, is, uh, is just in the room. Uh, but I think it's really important uh, to refrain from, from just uh, praising everything that European Union does. And I agree there are many things that we should do more and differently. Um, coming to Euromed integration and to the question of how to um, sort of, in a way, defy real politic. Um, so let's say building um, uh, partnerships. Um, 
if countries don't join and we see that cities are much more relevant, um, how do you see, a, what, do you, what do you see as being the potential for a, for, for a I don't know, confederation of uh, uh, Mediterranean cities right. in order to address the, the problems in the region? Thank you. Thank you very much. I don't think we're here to praise Europe, but to be actually factual about what's being done and what's not being done. The idea is to do things better. Uh, for everyone. So thank you very much for that comment. If I could take that, yeah. Sana, later, just let's have, yeah. Uh, thank you very much for the intriguing talk. I have um, just quick. a small and quick remark to um, Mr. Abdel Basit. I wanted to, um, you talked about school reforms and educational reforms, and me as a young teacher actually in the same country, and I haven't heard of these reforms, I just wanted to ask you, this huge effort that is a dream come true to every Tunisian. I'm really sick of these educational programs that I have been taught and I am teaching children and youngsters who have different aspirations and different interests. So where do youth stand on these kind of reforms? So the, the title of this talk is Walking the, Walk, Walking the Talk. So we're talking, but where's youth engagement in these reforms? Yeah. I would love to have a panel yeah. of educators, young educators who have a lot to say about this in these school reforms that you are engaged in with the government. Right. We would like to take part. Thank you, thank you very much. And last question, Sana, please. Hi, thanks uh, for our panelists, but I have a question uh, for Just Tara. quickly identify yourself for the others. Uh, um, uh, I'm Hassan Aude, I'm Palestinian, I'm a professor at New York University and New York University of Abu Dhabi, and uh, um, my question is to Tarek and Michael. Um, I know about the frustrations that you both seem to indicate in terms of the relationship, but I'm also very curious about, I'm sure you have your own, from, from your own experience, to talk about what you would like to, to also see from the experience in terms of how would these relationships would materialize and projects maybe to foster future projects. I mean, I think I'm looking for the hope, I'm looking for also to look from your own experience things that might work uh, for the region because I think it's a real complete disaster that we have uh, a strong partner in a way that is not functional in this relationship. And then my second question, if anybody can, can comment on it, is there any way that technology can be a big part of this in terms of entrepreneurship exactly. and, and especially that the threat that we face in terms of democracy, I mean, worldwide, if we don't talk yeah. about security and privacy. I mean, uh, yesterday, Mark Zuckerberg was here and unfortunately right. nobody was, you know, a computer scientist was able to challenge him in the room and it's a huge disaster because we were looking for Europe to sort of stand up to this, you know, a okay. uh, huge threat in a way. So, but, you know, technology has, has so Thank much Thank you, Sana. I think, I think you're absolutely right. To, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm being rude, but we really need to get to the panel and then finish uh, on time. But thank you very much for both those questions. I think very, very relevant indeed. Hello, I'm going to ask you to um, kick off. Um, okay, so about education. Um, just as Rehab said, unfortunately, I just even heard about these ongoing reforms from Mr. Abdel Basit. And it seems like uh, the teachers and students were excluded from this. Uh, I think at this point where we are in a country where teachers are kind of demonized because there's this general unrest about the labor union and how the teachers are taking uh, advantage of strikes to get at the students, but it's basically they are calling for more rights, for better curriculum, and for that they are penalized, and so the public opinion keeps on shifting with these teachers. So here we should mobilize the civil society and also the use of social media is very useful in Tunisia because with a hashtag and a picture on Facebook you can get the attention of many people and try to counter that shifting narrative that the government is trying to push on these teachers. And in the end, uh, an educational reform is a very difficult thing but it's a process so I guess we're trying to get there but it's disappointing and I must frankly say that teachers and students are excluded from this process and even I mean even the administrative side is not existent and uh, the administrative side is kind of representative of the government so the headmaster or some important person at the school and 
it's not possible that someone who works on the ground with these kids and is dealing with their daily problems even more than their parents are doing because these teachers, they're closer to the students sometimes than the, than the parents. And I've, I've been through this. And sometimes the parents, they are completely oblivious to what their students right. are going through. So the first point of contact with the, with the kid sometimes is not the parents, but the teachers at school. So this is a really important space that we should reform. Right. Right. Do, do come in on this issue because too, something that you're doing which is so important and obviously not being communicated or, or known by, by the people who are affected by it, right? Before talking about the, uh, the uh, reform of the education reform, I think that it's very important to go back to the issue of uh, the geostrategic changes mm -hmm. in our but, region. But, yeah, briefly. I think it's very important to say that we are going through many, many geostrategic changes. And I think that we, don't, we, we, we need not to, uh, to forget that some countries and the Arab countries are destroyed, or are being destroyed. And that resolving peacefully some situations in the Arab country, I think, is part of the solution. To resolve peacefully conflicts in the Arab region, I think this will help to develop any kind of scenario for our region. But, but that, that's the vision, Abdelbaz said. The reality is so different. The reality I, is that we, we, Arab state is loggerheads with the other Arab state. I mean... Of course, I think that the engagement, we are talking today about the engagement of international institutions and the engagement of EU. I think that these institutions should be part of the solution and not part of the problem. And I think that we are talking about uh, uh, humanistic problems, about uh, uh, refugees. Refugees are the result of conflicts. And I think that we need really to, to develop also some leadership on the issue of, of uh, peace. Second thing, I think that uh, concerning the uh, reform of the school system in Tunisia. I didn't say that we started the reform. I said that we are engaged now in a dialogue on reforming the school system. This dialogue is conducted by the Ministry of Education, 14 civil society organizations, and one of them is the labor union. And we started consultations and we consulted with in the schools and 90-90% of the schools took part to this in, in these uh, consultations and the consultations will will uh, be continued because we are uh, working on 15 we'll be working on 15 issues what is important in the reform of school system first that it's based on reforming the public school one of the most, the major problems in our countries is the situation of the public school. The public mm -hmm. school in a very bad situation, and I think that we need really to address the reform starting by reforming the school system from the public school. Right, so there's hope for both of you involved in the teaching profession that there will come and consult you or involve you in the discussion. So remember that commitment you've made, you'll have to walk that talk as well of the message. So thank you very much. And uh, we're all witness to that. Tarek, um, <laughs> wake up call to Tarek. Uh, I also want you to talk about the cities. You know, we've talked about uh, geopolitical uh, challenges and obviously, the, as uh, Sana has said, the frustrations and how do we make things better? How do we actually get the right partnerships going we start from scratch if needed, but you know we've known each other for a very long time. We know the weaknesses and the strengths. Maybe a refreshed uh, restart. Yeah, well. A lot of things, Shada. I'm, I'm going to try to pick very, uh, very carefully and uh, and respond to a few things and just agree with a lot of what I've heard. I mean, Michael, I totally agree with you on how you described and diagnosed the Arab world. I totally agree with you. The problems you've described are exactly the problems that we have. And the only thing I was, I guess, part of an assumption that I didn't state very explicitly was these problems are not going away anytime soon. And it will be a very long time before things settle down, which presents an immense dilemma for Europe or for anybody who wants to deal with the region. And I think that raises the question in the face of 
state collapse or state fragility, weak institutions, and in a lot of countries, and this is a new trend in the last five years, sort of a, a degradation in the capacity of governments to act, to deliver, to administer. Something that we took for granted many years ago, sort of strong states was kind of one of the mottos of the Arab world. Actually, our states now are unable to do basic functions mm -hmm. because of capacity issues and human capital issues. What can you do given these circumstances? And I think this project, this engagement, is one concrete, pragmatic response. Uh, working with actors in the youth space and the social space and the economic space uh, to introduce, pilot, and scale up programs and activities, whether they happen to be in education and entrepreneurship. I believe wholeheartedly in this. Subject, of course, to questions about scalability, sustainability, funding, which are becoming increasingly an issue in the Arab world now. Uh, we hosted an event just uh, two weeks ago in, uh, in Istanbul. Uh, the biggest difficulty we faced, and this was an event not on politics, was just upon social innovation, mm. bringing together actors, people like Hala and others, who were actually piloting or working on projects that aim to improve the public space. Mm. It was very difficult because, well, Turkey is not a benign actor in the region anymore. So many people from certain countries could not travel. The alternative countries were also equally unattractive for other actors. Some, some students, some youth could not take the funding, fearing that this might raise consequences, mm -hmm. and raise issues with some other government. So the circumstances, Shada, for even the things we do, notwithstanding all the issues and questions that might be asked about their effectiveness, sustainability, mm -hmm the conditions are becoming more and more difficult. Mm -hmm. I mean, compared to 10 years ago, uh, I'd say a, a project such as yours faces far more obstacles, but in, in my humble opinion, and this is where I agree with Michael again, it is not about grandiose projects. It is about working in spaces where we can be effective. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But in some cases, we need to, the requirements are grandiose. You know, an infrastructure, project by definition has to have certain outputs, outcomes, and it has to be implemented within a certain timeline, and it has to be funded. And you have to ask all those questions, and in some of those countries, those are needed. So I think we need to continue doing what we do, try to amplify it, scale it up, mm -hmm. make it sustainable. I am a believer in cities as, as one of the current dynamics that is likely to gain more traction in the future, cities as pockets for, mm. for innovation, for technological adaption, for, uh, and also for migration. I mean, the, that safety valve is the cities in most of these countries are now becoming the magnets mm. for migrants, internal, internally displaced people, but also migrants who are coming from abroad. Uh, we now have climate change to deal with. That's what's pushing a lot of Africans further north who want to fight, migrate further into Europe, there's things beyond our, our uh, but there are things about cities that we need to study, better appreciate, and there are policy responses that have to be put in place. Uh, I have been more than convinced about what I have seen recently in terms of analyses uh, that suggest that cities ought to become the unit of analysis when thinking about economic prosperity, social cohesion, and even globalization and technological uh, adoption. Right. Tarek, I'm going to, under this, is there a burning point you want to make now? Just very quickly? No. You've, you've said your, you've had your say. Well, thank you very much for pointing that out. Friends of Europe also, we're working a lot on cities, mayors and cities. Thank you very much indeed. Also for talking about how things have, well, I mean, sobering thoughts, things are not getting better. So, Michael, things are not getting better. First, I want to ask you what you put in Tarek's and my coffee that we all agree on everything. It's, it's almost boring oh. for, for the young people it's, here. Yeah. But uh, no, uh, <laughs> first, let's, let me turn back to Ayman. Um, Ayman, you're absolutely right uh, uh, on everything you said. Uh, you're in particular right on um, the fact that uh, our funding system for civil society NGOs is, is not sufficient, and it is definitely much worse than it was, say, 10 years or 20 years ago. Uh, I can tell you why it has to do with two things. First, um, 
uh, if you go for all these projects, uh, we need human resources to manage that, that we don't have simply. So we come back to the resources point. Just compare the stuff numbers that we have at the European Union with the stuff numbers of the World Bank. Uh, there are statistics that show how many people we have per 1 million euros that we manage. Compare that with any other international organization or national organizations, you will see we are the slimmest organizations of all. But this is the drawback. And the second thing is, in 1999, um, there was a commission headed by President Santerre, which was brought down because of financial misconduct. And since then, the guys who rule the European Union are the auditors. And since then, we tried to strike back and win more and more kind of margin of maneuver. But we would need, I agree with you, a totally different risk management culture to go for all these small grants again, which in the late 90s we were able to give. Uh, you're totally right, but... Um, so you're, you're allowing the bean counters... That, so. You're allowing the bean counters to craft the policies. <laughs> in a way, yes. But let me, let me uh, take the second point uh, that uh, Ayman uh, made, and also Sana in a way, technology, DG Connect and so forth. This is great. And of course we work with them. And of course we want to do more. But again, it takes two to tango. Which is the Arab Mediterranean country that has a real IT policy or an artificial intelligence policy? Let me caricaturize. What is the economic policy of Egypt? Just to name one country. Very easy. Paragraph one, on the macroeconomics, implement what the IMF is doing. Paragraph two, just make sure you get more rent. The rent you get from extending the Suez Canal, hopefully, and from ox, uh, offshore gas exploration. Paragraph three, on the micro, uh, microeconomics and all the rest, ask the army to come in. <laughs> where is the IT project there? Where, where is the, the potential of uh, 50 million young Egyptians, uh, of whom at least, I would say, 5% or so, could become the IT engineers of the future? I don't see this there, I don't see it in any country. Uh, and of course, everything we could offer, or others could offer in that respect, uh, would only go as far as there is a, a policy, a training policy, an economic policy, that sees this as one of the sectors of the future. I can tell you it is difficult enough to convince Arab countries to go for renewable energy, which today is no longer high-tech, it's low-tech actually. But even that is very difficult. Ask our Tunisian friends, for example. Um, on cities, if I wanted to be optimistic, I would tell you there's one good example, that's the Covenant of Mayors, which in the area of climate uh, mitigation, climate adaptation, is a way, so to say, to bring cities together and to make them lead further than their states want to go. And we, again, fund this and support this and so right. forth. And I was there, actually, uh, in order to extend this uh, instrument which initially uh, existed inside the European Union and then with our eastern neighbors into the Mediterranean. The problem, however, is what is a city? A city in many Mediterranean countries is more an urban agglomeration than a policy-making entity. Mm -hmm. How many mayors do you know in the Arab world that represent the people, the citizens of their city? What is the budget of a city? What is the prerogative of a city council? If we don't have real devolution, mm -hmm. if we don't have real regionalization, tell me the Arab country where you have real regionalization, not even in Tunisia. If we don't have that, how can cities then become the embryo of something that grows and grows further than what the state could... Uh, so we would like to support this very much. It is in the European DNA. Right. But again, we come to the problem that, on the one hand, cities don't have this kind of prerogative that they have all over Europe and in many other continents. And secondly, when then there are local elections, the young people don't go to vote. Right. What the heck is this? I mean, in a country like Tunisia, where you have a large number of independent candidates, and where you know that cities could have an impact on your personal life as a young person, you don't even need to vote for one of the big parties that you don't trust. You can vote for an independent yeah. candidate that you know because he comes from your neighborhood. <laughs> and even there, you don't go to vote. Well, if that is the case, there is a real problem. Right. 
Michael, Michael, that's, I, sorry, I, I think I can do what I was going to say, Michael. Thank you very much indeed. But that is a challenge that all of us face in democracies. It's mobilizing young people. But you're absolutely right to point that out as also one of the obstacles. And I know that Sana is dying to tell you about her project, which is working on technology, technology uh, university. Uh, and I'm sure she can say it uh, in private because you uh, and I both have to rush. And I think we've had a very, very fascinating conversation. I've actually don't have a final word because uh, Hella has taken this obligation from me and she's going to uh, provide you with a collective poem. So, uh, the floor's yours. So, I have uh, just a little context. Um, I started an initiative in Tunisia that promotes uh, English spoken word, which is theatrical poetry. And so we had the idea to write a collective poem. And what I'm going to read now is a line for each person in this initiative that I met these days telling us about the experience we had. A shift that is long due and a change, but not for the few. A great journey to follow, a quest to begin, for all to join in, full of hope and confidence, full of passion and perseverance. Lots of love and tolerance, consideration, respect and acceptance. I see bright faces in the horizon. Seeing them is just so amazing. It's their era. It's their time. They are united in time and space, taking the time to reflect and feel each other. All barriers have fallen, showing oneness for peace. But isn't this how it was supposed to be? From the beginning of times, you were my sister, you were my brother. Our differences actually bring us together. It is a difficult endeavor, but our ties shall never sever. My presence beside you is existence. We meet tomorrow to fulfill the promises. So as I said, it takes the weight off my shoulders, Hella. Thank you very much indeed, Hella. Thank you indeed to all our panelists, and the conversation con continues. Uh, could I just make uh, one request to all the participants? So those who were here yesterday, all the participants, you know who you are. You were here yesterday. Please stay back, and I would like to say thank you very much to all the others. Thank you for coming, and we hope to see you again at Friends of Europe.